0: Eric Malinowski, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on. So um, we usually spend this the usual first 10 minutes of the podcast or so talking about Hamilton. I know you're a <laughs> Hamilton agnostic, so the good news is that's it's more time to talk about the other pop culture obsession of my life, The Simpsons. Excellent. So um, obviously you wrote the great piece for Deadspin, what, four or five years ago now on uh, yep. Homer at the right. Bat? Sure.
1: About a week or two away from the fifth anniversary of that piece running.
0: All right. So um, how big a Simpsons nerd are you in general?
1: I am the sort of the prototypical, like, first eight seasons nerd. All right. Yeah, same here. (laughs) Yeah. And having said that, it's been, I will be the first to admit, far too long since I have revisited uh, a lot of those episodes in earnest. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I am very much of a generation where those you know those were uh, you know uh, original coming on every Sunday during a very uh, formative period in my life right <laughs> yes comedic same.
0: sensibilities and and pop culture appreciation and, and things like that yeah same here and then when it went to Thursday obviously a big deal so kind of looking back at that at the at the homer at the bat piece with, with, with some time I mean what was it about that? that episode specifically that kind of drew you in to write about it
1: i mean it really just kind of hit it was kind of the perfect nexus of my interests i mean just the show itself and then and then you know just becoming of age really as a baseball fan back then and then sort of looking back on it kind of through the lens of history and just kind of uh you know it was what in some ways it was kind of those things that i sort of taken for granted and when I went during the time when I was pitching and, and conceiving of the piece, it was one of those things where I kind of looked back and I really kind of took a deep look at not just kind of the, the different machinations that brought that episode about, but sort of the the actual characters, the players that were in that episode and and, and the ways that history <laughs> had treated them over the years and mm-hmm. sort of the twists and turns that, that each of their careers and personalities had taken. So I thought that, especially at that time, it was really – it was kind of a, a ripe, kind of the perfect opportunity to to really delve in uh, with both feet and and you know I mean right around the, you know the time that I thought of that uh, idea to do that piece I mean we were literally only about a couple months away from the twentieth anniversary so we had sort of a built-in time peg which when you're a writer thinking of ideas for pieces like that's that's gold right there so I just figured all all, all the planets were aligning just kind of perfectly yeah
0: is that your favorite
1: episode? Yeah, oh, really? <laughs> I, I, one of those things where I'm, I, I, I there, there's a there's like, uh, you know, the uh, hang Scorpio, you know, right. you, you only move twice, and Lisa on ice, and things like like, there's a few that kind of that kind of bubble up to the surface pretty quickly, but I mean. Like I said at the risk of overthinking it I mean that's that that one for me just has endless
0: rewatchability factor. Yeah, I haven't watched I'm like you same age same kind of growing up with it and it's been too long since I've watched them. My favorite episode was always the beer Baron, Homer versus the 18th amendment which is <laughs> either season 8 or season 10 I forget which one but um it's not a pop, it, the it's grandfather's not, into that golden era. Right right amendment. it's just at the, at the edge of that Of that era. And I'm very excited because my daughter is six. And so we're just kind of getting. she's coming of
1: age now. She can start to appreciate this. Exactly.
0: And she's just coming at that age where I can start introducing her. And I'm trying to avoid doing the typical dad thing where like I overthink it and try to get the right episodes in line for her to watch it and just watch it. I'm lucky, though. She does theater and the youth theater she does is doing Music Man. Oh, perfect. Monorail. There
1: you go. So just bring the monorail
0: episode. There you go. Exactly. And that's probably one you would start with anyway or be very early in the introduction of it. So um, either that or Mr. Plow. Yeah, that was that was the other one I had thought (laughs) of, too. (laughs) Um, Now I'm going to be singing Mr. Plow in my head the rest of the day. And that's awesome. things to get stuck in your head, let's be honest. That's true. Um, So currently you're not writing about The Simpsons anymore. You're writing about the Golden State Warriors. Um, And so when's the book come out?
1: So the book is slated to come out uh, this October. So sometime during training camp, just just ahead of the upcoming season. Okay, and how's it going? Uh, it's going well. I'm I'm in that sort of i uh, I'm in the calm. You know, like like when a hurricane is passing over, mm-hmm. and you know you, you breach the eye wall, and then it's very calm. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I am right now because I'm I'm I've submitted the manuscript and uh, just at the end of last, literally like on you know the 30th or 31st, it was due at the end of the calendar year. And they said it would take about six weeks for edits to come back. So we're 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 sitting firmly in okay. that window where, <laughs> you know, any day I could get a, you know, 350-page Word document with track changes, you know, <laughs> in my inbox. And, and then, you know, I'll, I'll probably have, you know, four to six weeks to turn it around. But it, it's a nice window right now. I think as long you – know, my goal basically is to sort of get all of the edits done uh, by April 1 or just around the time that NBA playoffs start, you know, which I guess is around April 15th. Okay. Uh, because, you know, obviously – with the Warriors winning so many games, they're going to be pretty busy come playoff time again. So it would be nice to kind of have that
0: off my plate and be able to focus on playoffs. So that's right.
1: that, that's the plan
0: right now. So how long a manuscript are we talking that you finished?
1: Uh, well, they I, I promised it uh, to them initially in my proposal at you know 80 to 100. I, I've fact-checked uh, previously. I, I've been a fact-checker for a long time, and I fact-checked uh, four books uh, okay. in that time. So I – as far as that goes, I had a pretty good idea of kind of like how long this, the book would be or, you know, for the story that I wanted to tell. I ended up filing it at just a little bit over 110, okay. 110 words. So that number will come down and then it will go back <laughs> up and maybe come down again. But it's, you know, I mean, the idea, you know, I want people to kind of, you know, hold the book in your hand and feel like, you know, you're not getting cheated, you know, that you're, you're, you're
0: getting everything that you paid for. So, um, and how long did it take you to write?
1: It, probably about 7 or 8 months uh, altogether I mean I started you know we 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 sold the proposal like I think it was during the first round of the playoffs so you know late late April early May and I tried to get it started sort of during the playoffs. I mean, I had all of these ideas, you know, everything sort of swimming in my head. And there was really only so much that I could do while playoffs were still going on. So once the finals were done, you know, mid-late June, I kind of started it. And then the Kevin Durant stuff with on July 4th, and that not only delayed, you know, the, <laughs> the right of what I had originally proposed, but I, in essence, you know, added thousands of words and, and delayed what what it is I was trying to do probably by weeks, but... Um, but that that that's why we have the summer <laughs> that's why we have the season and uh, and and I learned the virtues of um, you know I used a, a scrivener uh, the mm-hmm. writing program which uh, I, you know, several of my friends have written books they, they rave about it and so I, I discovered kind of halfway through the process that it has this little um, I think it's called project targets okay so you can Set um, you can you can set a daily word limit that you want to reach, which is great. You can set a word limit for your entire document, which is awesome. And you can set yourself like a deadline date, and it will tell you you know TK days until due. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you, there's it's it's it, there's a big motivating factor when you see that number go down by you know a thousand words a day, fifteen hundred words a day, but you, you see that date drawing ever closer. And uh, it's amazing how fast you can write <laughs> when, when you're staring at that little box down in the
0: left-hand corner of your screen. That was one of the things I learned. Yeah, Scrivener, I wrote my dissertation in Scrivener. I loved it. It's, amazing, it's isn't it? It's great. And do you know about the... Trans- i tell everyone about this. Do you know about the transcription option that you have in Scrivener? I think I might know about this, but
1: refresh my memory. So it's,
0: you, you create like the... In Scrivener, this is riveting podcasting, by the way. I I know, in Scrivener, know, right? you, you create the, uh, like a... Like a double window so you have like a window up top and bottom you can have the an audio file playing in it and typing and transcribing in the top window and they're like really easy to learn key commands to so like pause go back five seconds and that so if you're transcribing you don't have to you can do it all within scrivener and don't have to like juggle back and forth between something it's really well, helpful into that i actually
1: use for my transcription here here's another pro writer tip mm-hmm. hashtag um <laughs> i use a web app called otranscribe.com okay um where it's just it's a free website you just uh, upload your your audio file and and it's kind of basically the same thing you're talking about where you kind of type and and you can you know you press the escape uh key to pause and then it automatically goes back two seconds Mm -hmm. every time you restart it so it, it it's increased my transcription by like you know 30%, 40% 40 percent,
0: probably. It's amazing. Which so. is awesome because transcription is the worst, right? It's right. literally the worst part of being a writer. <laughs> literally the worst part. And I'm the guy who picked for his dissertation to do hour long interviews with writers, and did like had like thirty of them to transcribe. So it's you really know. my fault. But that was really out. There are many mornings when I regretted that decision. The um, struggle
1: is real. You
0: it, know it, what I'm talking it, about. It, it totally is. So. Tell me, uh, let's back up a little bit on the process of the book, and obviously the Warriors have had this incredible run uh, for the last couple years, uh, winning the title, then going 73 and losing to Cleveland last year, and Steph Curry and all. So how did the idea for a book about them come about? Like, Walk me through that whole process.
1: Well, uh, to back up even, not even a little further, much further, um, you know, when I... um, I had been a fact tracker at Wired magazine for seven years, give or take, uh-huh. in San Francisco. And um and that was great, but then it became a time where I wanted to nobody <laughs> wants to be a fact tracker forever. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> uh, as great as it was, and, and for as much as I learned in that process. And it was really fortuitous around that time Wired started a sports blog. So I, you know, literally moved across the hall from the magazine to the website and I was in in essence the sports editor of Wired.com. And I did that for a year, um, and I got to write some really cool pieces, but one of the most important pieces that I wrote while I was there was, it was in um, April of 2011, and uh, I went to, I'd read like just an AP blurb in, in the paper about how the Warriors were one of the uh, the latest or you know first teams to explore installing these uh, newfangled sport view motion tracking cameras uh, throughout Oracle Arena. Okay. And, you know, it talked about how they've, they've got these new owners, and you know, they, they're going to try to, you know, maybe it can help them, you know, revamp, you know, the, the, turn around all these years of losing, maybe this investment in technology and analytics and all that, maybe it's going to even turn around a sad sack franchise like the Warriors. And I thought, all right, well, that could be interesting. So I contacted them, you know, I was literally walking through the rafters of Oracle Arena with their their VP of player personnel, and he's, you know, we're leaning over the edge of these, you know, these catwalks, and he's he's pointing out the cameras to me, and and I and I end up writing this story about how the Warriors are—they're going for it. You know, they've got new owners; they're investing in this technology. They're they're rock bottom. They've been rock bottom for so many years. What do they really have to lose? And gosh, you just never know. You know, maybe maybe they can turn things around. They got they got this young talent. Um, you just never know. And I guess years later, you know, you, you throw enough darts, you hit the bullseye. Right. <laughs> so he ended up being uh, pretty prescient. So, uh, you know, it was sort of in the middle of last season. I had been covering them for a couple of years for Sports on Earth. I was freelancing, doing a lot of Warriors coverage and, and going to a lot of games. And and I think it was probably right around the All-Star break when they were, I think they were 48-4 and four going into last year's All-Star break, which is just completely insane. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just, I kind of got the feeling that maybe the time was right for this. I, I certainly didn't know that anyone else was really kind of working on something. Okay. I didn't really overthink it. Like I didn't start to think like, you know, wh- why, wh- why should I be the one to do this? I just kind of thought, well, this makes a lot of sense. And I would, I would have the time to do it. I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't have a staff position anywhere and I'm not like a, a beat that has to, you know, write up every single thing that's happening with this team. I'm, I'm close enough to the team that I kind of know I know what's going on, and I can talk about it knowledgeably. But I would also have the bandwidth to actually sort of undertake a project like this. So, you know, long story short, I ended up contacting an agent I met from my years at Wired, and we put together a proposal and we sent it out. I remember the Warriors were 69 and nine; there were four games left in the season, and we sent it out. And that was real. I guess that was kind of like a buy low moment for the Warriors because. Right. They've literally got to win their last four games in order to get this history, and they're you know they're playing the you know playing San Antonio twice in those four games, and like really, what are the odds that they're actually going to be able to pull that off? And when they did win those four games and hit seventy three, I figured now it's probably going to sell because if nothing else, they can they can they can sell the seventy three. Like they they've right. now set a record that likely may never be eclipsed. And one of the things I was really careful with with the proposal was I never wrote it. Um, contingent in any way on them actually winning the title last year. Okay, Which I just thought like made made sense from a practical standpoint because you can't really predict what's going to happen. You just don't know. as we saw, <laughs> even the most <laughs> probable of uh, uh, scenarios can always uh, happen in the end. Um, but at the same time, you know, I would have I, I, would have kind of felt weird for me because I in some ways, I would have felt like I had been some sort of emotional investment in the outcome. Right. And I'm covering, you know, I covered every home playoff game for the last couple of years now. And it's like you know, I didn't I didn't grow up a Warriors fan. I didn't grow up in the Bay Area. I grew up in New York. I was a Knicks fan growing up. So, uh-huh. you know, the Warriors winning or losing any given game like does not it does not affect me deep down in any way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um it, it would have been weird for me to kind of alter that calculus in some way. So, it seems smart and for all those reasons though just like look, I didn't even spell it out in proposal. If they win the title, we go in this direction and if mm. they lose the title and they even wrote, I said, if they lose the title, they might they they've got a good shot then to sign Kevin Durant. Right. And that's just the <laughs> events that ended up happening. And so instead of going in one direction, we went in another direction. And and it just uh and and just the kind of the more I thought about it, I just realized you know especially covering this team the last couple of years, I realized that their uh their ascension has just been so so fast mm-hmm. and, uh, when I hear people talk about warriors fatigue or oh, they're so good, I'm so tired of hearing about them, I mean there was a stretch you know right you know th- this will be the fifth year in a row that they make the playoffs before before this current streak started they did not qualify for the playoffs in 18 out of 19 seasons yeah. it's really hard to not make the playoffs in the nba and i went through you know the history of every team's playoff uh, runs i could only find one other instance in the entire history of the nba that was more futile than that 18 out of 19 stretch. And that was the Clippers, who (laughs) – the Clippers once did not make the playoffs for 15 years in a row. And that's the worst that I can find, and the Warriors were the second worst. So, yeah, I mean, it just feels like this has been such a quick rise. And I wanted to write something that really sort of appreciated, like, that really just kind of gave everyone a sense of, what all the different machinations were they went into this all the twists and turns the decisions that they made all the ways that it really frankly could have gone horribly wrong and it right didn't. so it's more also about the decisions that they did not make and it's all kind of framed around the new ownership coming in it's about Steph, you know coming of age it's about the team you know embracing you know these tenants of silicon valley and technology and just kind of you know just really sort of revamping the entire culture of the organization from the top all the way to the bottom because the warriors really like the whole organization really was in a very toxic place uh when this new ownership came in and it took years for them to turn it around but now you know you're kind of seeing the fruits of all that labor and and if you ask them I mean they'll say that this this did not happen by accident you know right. obviously I don't think they could have predicted it would uh, they would get so good so quickly but this was all kind of done with a plan in place, and they'll say that this is what they meant to do, and this is how they executed it.
0: Yeah, it, 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 it can be hard. Like my students are what eighteen to twenty one years old, and so it can be hard to to try to tell them. For most of my life, most of your life, like the Golden State Wars, they were just, they were barely on the radar. They were kind of. I don't know if even irrelevant kind of captures it. Like they were just this other team that was in California. Like they weren't the Lakers, like the Clippers were historic, always historically bad. And like, they had a couple of years with Hardaway and the Sprewell years. But other than that, they were just kind of like a team in the league. Like they, they, they were never anything that, that you really thought about. And yeah, I know it can be probably really easy to look at it and think, well, they got Steph Curry. Steph Curry is turned into this great player. And It's easy to win when you have Steph Curry, but you know, as a Buffalo lifelong Buffalo Bills fan, I know from really bad ownership and really bad uh, stretches of futility here. So, I mean, from your reporting and and, you know, looking at what the ownership has done, like, how how do you turn an organization? How do they turn an an organization around like that? Beyond just getting the once in a generation player like Curry, like what goes into rebuilding an organization that's so toxic into something that's so not toxic.
1: I mean, from, from sort of a very basic foundational level, you have to, you know, if you talk to them, they'll say, you create a workplace where people enjoy coming to work. Like, you know, I, I I can't, I've never really heard, like to hear the way that the Warriors internally talk about this team and this organization, it's not the traditional terms. It's not the way that we think about a sports organization. They talk about People coming into the workplace to work. They're they're talking about the players, you know, coming mm-hmm. to practice. And they and those these are the these are the words that they use. And it's like this is just like it's just like anyone else that has an office job. And you go you go to a job. You want to be happy at your job. You don't want to b- work with a bunch of jerks. You don't want to work with people whose goals are not aligned with the same as yours. And that's like a very simple thing to say. I think it's a hard thing to execute, mm-hmm. but you have to. But in some ways, you just have to be committed to it, and you have to have you know you have to have executives who are going to be committed to that idea. I mean, you you hire a guy like Bob Myers, you know, to be your general manager who has no executive experience whatsoever. He was a sports agent for 15 years, um, but you hire him because you know he grew up a Warriors fan. He understands what this team means to the area. He he has connections in the league, and he's a smart and diplomatic guy. And he's a guy who. Is not going to sign jerks to your roster. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, and on some levels, it doesn't. It doesn't really get more complicated than that. And obviously, there's 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 eventually there's got to be a tipping point. Like you 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 just need talent at some point. You right. Know? You have to make yourself a destination where good players are going to want to come to. And it just wasn't like that for years. Honestly, you know, the tipping point really was Andre Iguodala. You know, signing a, a, a contract in the summer of 2013. Um, That really was it. I mean, after that, everything just kind of fell into place. You know, the next year they signed, you know, Sean Livingston for, you know, for, for a pittance Mm
0: -hmm. and,
1: uh, and he, and he's been so valuable. Then they hired Steve Kerr to be their coach and, and only something that happened, but you've got to, you've got to start committed to an ideal. You've got to see it through. You've got to have faith that you're going to be able to attract players that are going to want to play in that type of environment. And, and then you, at that point you just kind of hope for the best. I mean, it's like you said, you know, it's a crapshoot. And uh, but it's kind of it's worked out for them. I mean, and, and and it is, and it is not. You know, it's not luck. It's not. Oh, they're just you know riding off of the you know the amazing excellence of a player like Steph Curry. I mean, it's not. Like, there's just so much more that goes into the equation. And if anything, I hope when people read it, they kind of come away with a greater appreciation for those sorts of things, and not just think that well. They just went because they got Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, <laughs> right? And a guy like Draymond Green, and by the way, a guy like Draymond Green who was never, you know, supposed to be an All Star, things like that. So, I just hope that people kind of, you know, think about it on a little bit of a deeper level. Yeah.
0: So, in terms of writing and re- reporting and writing on the book, you know, I talk to a lot of people who've written books. this and it's one of those things where like every english major and every journalism major says oh someday i want to write a book um and it was when i was a research assistant in grad school and i would work on a couple book projects with professors that i realized holy god that's a to do a book and to do a decent book is an unhealthy amount of work to be able to try to do like it's much harder than i think a lot of people think so from your perspective, what didn't you know about writing a book that maybe you wish you had that you wish you that, what do you know now that you wish you had known back when you started this
1: I think that um well, I'll tell you one thing you know sort of looking at from going to the end of the process and looking back at the start you know I remember when I kind of wrapped up my manuscript and I literally printed out all the pages mm-hmm. and wow. kind of held it in my hand and I just kind of had this thought to myself that like I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of the process that, like, this would be, like, the end product, I think it just would have psyched me out so much. Okay. So, like, you know, <laughs> I, I started, like I said, you know, earlier, like, I kind of started thinking, like, oh, I'm going to do it in this sort of this 80 to 100, and it ended up being, like, 113, I think is what it was. And I just think that that would have psyched me out so much at the beginning of the process if I had... You no, know, there would be all these chapters, and you know they're gonna, you know, be in sort of the you know, ten to twelve thousand word range each of them. You know, I mean, I'd written stories. I think the longest story, single story I'd ever published before writing this was, I think it was twelve thousand words, something okay. like. Um, and then just the idea that like you're gonna have to do that nine times, <laughs> <laughs> in order to get this done, and you're gonna have to do that like, you know, in a time frame where you're basically doing more than one of those per month. Right, you know, right you're doing like 1.2 of those per month you know i like basically eight months you know to, to pull this together and so that uh, you know in, in reverse you know the terms you know it was actually better to sort of not go there you know <laughs> and to just try to you know like i said with script you can set like the daily limit like that really was sort of a lifesaver just the whole idea that like if you can do this and, and sort of stick to a schedule and just kind of you know crank out your eight hundred to a thousand words a day, like that sounds like a lot. I think if you, if you're not like sort of in that rhythm and you're not kind of used to that, obviously that can be a lot. Mm-hmm. I think I was at the point sort of I had done uh, you know, I had enough staff jobs. I've certainly been freelancing for long enough. Where I think especially with freelancing, there's often you know more of a hustle and more of a grind, and you're you're sort of writing more in, in sort of a more compressed space of time. Mm-hmm the whole idea of sort of sitting down and carving out in the day to do 800 to 1000 words was not intimidating. Right. So think about that in like, times you now that times 100, incredibly intimidating, right? <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of not go there. And and also before the process, I was not a big outliner. Okay, I'm not really into outlines. Like I just I, I was ver- I very much like the process of kind of Just kind of, I knew, kind of knew where I was going to start and then we'll just kind of see where the story goes. We'll see where the characters take us, you know, the details, things like that. And that had sort of served me pretty well. And for this, I kind of realized early on in the process that that was not going to (laughs) fly. This really, for me, was kind of like a, it was just all about organization as well and just kind of. You know, getting your folder system set up. You know, doing Evernote and things like that, and just scribbling everything—like literally, as soon as you think of something, scribble it down or, or type it into a, a notes uh, document or something like that. Because you will invariably and very quickly forget it, <laughs> and then it will drive you crazy, and uh, and that's uh, that's counterproductive. Right. So, and the other the other thing that I found that was counterproductive early on is don't read good basketball books. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Back and I was thinking, oh, I should I should get some inspiration, you know like um, you know because the, the you know I, the, I knew that book tone, pacing, structure, things like that, those are all going to be different than writing sort of a standard feature story. Like it's a little too simplistic to say that you know a, a book is not just you know 12 you know each you think of each chapter as being essentially like a feature story. it's It's more complicated than that, right it's not just that it's also the tone and it's the way you sound and things like that. Like it's, it's a l- like with books, it's a little bit more casual. Mm-hmm. I don't know like another way to explain it, but you, you've got to let the reader know, Hey, settle in. We've got a hundred thousand more words to go. <laughs> don't go anywhere. Uh, but also it's going to be worth it, but just come along for the ride. So you, you've got to be a little bit more, I think assuring in book tone. And so I just figured, Oh, I'm going to go read some good basketball books. I'm going to get myself inspired, you know? And, um, And so I read, you know, I reread, you know, like uh, Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I remember how much I love this book. But now that I'm in, like, my brain is sort of, you know, molding into book writing mode, I just, it completely psyched me out. And I just thought, (laughs) all I could think was, why am I writing a book? I'm never going to write anything as good as Breaks of the Game. Why am I doing this? This is a (laughs) loser's proposition. Why, 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 why? that honestly would probably like set me back by like a month. Okay. It was a good thing the playoffs were still
0: going on because I don't know how much I could have done, but that was not helpful. <laughs> right. Cause you re- you realize kind of the, the, uh, it's, it's like the Lincoln bedroom from West Wing. you realize kind of what curve you're being graded on in some respect when you're writing a book and you've, re- and, and, and this is like the David Halberstam book on basketball or something like that. It's mm-hmm. like, Oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> so I went ahead and I read the second best basketball book of all time, reread, which was
1: the, which is The City Game by Pete Axtham. And uh and that was a little bit better. I that love that book, but also structure wise. And that book was like thematically was a, a kind of different uh, kind of it was in similar in a lot of ways to what I wanted to do. You know, that book is, you know, about, you know, the Knicks championship season, you know, back in you know, nineteen seventy I think and and sort of following, you know, you know, Half of the book is basically, you know, him sort of following the Knicks through that season. And this book, in a lot of ways, you know, it, go, it goes through sort of a course of several years, but you're you're going through seasons, you know. So structurally, like, there was a lot to sort of take away. And another, I'll say one book that really helped me sort of get through this process was my friend Molly Knight wrote uh, this wonderful book on the Dodgers, The Best Team Money Can Buy. And that one also sort of very thematically and structurally, you know, different sports, but actually just a whole lot of the same themes going on. And, you know, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of behind the scenes and it's very sort of, you know, chronological and things like that. So, you know, that was also a book that I actually just kept, I actually opened that up, you know, dozens of times during the process where just thinking like, how do you how do you, you move through a section? You know what's your pacing? Mm-hmm. What kind of things which can we put in here? What kind of things can we cut? And that actually ended up being pretty helpful. So I basically the the moral of the story is you know don't read David Halberstam. <laughs> process, maybe you'll be fine in the end. <laughs> so what's the best thing you've read lately? Oh goodness! Um, like literally today? Can we get like how yes. how current here? Um, I just read, I literally just read, uh, Chris Ballard in the New Sports Illustrated wrote this really great piece about this fifteen-year-old um, um, basketball prodigy in Arizona, and it's amazing.
0: All right, so I is should it,
1: definitely check that out. This
0: is the Nico Mannion piece, right? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I think I saw. I think I saw you tweeting it out, or I saw somehow. I saw, it out, I saw it out there today, so it's on my... And, it's, and, uh, and
1: Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated, also of Sports Illustrated, wrote a really great Noah Syndergaard profile, which okay. I think is also awesome in this week's issue, so...
0: Excellent. I can recommend, there's a piece, it's not a sports piece, but I read it this week, it's from The Observer, and it is by, what's the author's name, I wrote it down, Ryan Holiday, and it's uh, I helped create the Milo trolling playbook, and oh, you should stop yes. playing right into it. It's really this is about the
1: Tucker Max piece, right? Yes,
0: yes. Mm-hmm. And he was like the PR guy for the Tucker Max movie, and basically saying how all like how inadvertently so many people on the left, and I'll include myself on that, kind of play into the the right wing internet troll handbook by by their reaction to him, and like the the more most effective way to treat them is basically to listen to them and make them look. Basically, just kind of lay out what they say and make them look foolish on their own right, rather than stirring up (laughs) anger for them, which is kind of what they fuel on. It's a really interesting piece.
1: Certainly, one approach. (laughs) Yes.
0: So I did. I can't let you out of here if I don't ask you about your uh, your famous social media strategy um, and never tweet. Um, Now we all know Twitter's the worst. I mean, we know that. Absolutely. But yeah. So um, so where did that come from? Your your never tweet uh, (sighs) bit. I
1: think it was – I think I remember it was maybe two and a half, three years ago. I think it was like the day that like Nate Silver was – he was tweeting about burritos.
0: Oh, that's right. The burritos and the – was this yeah. when he was arrested for like eating a burrito or something like that or – I
1: don't know if the authorities were involved. I don't remember. <laughs> angle, but it was actually sort of like – I think he was like he was basically doing a tweet storm like tweet storms were not very prevalent back then I think it was like 2014 but he was basically sort of ticking off as like you know he was just going on and on about burritos and he was he was was numbering his tweets like one two three four five and I just had the idea I just did one don't tweet (laughs) like yeah just stop. (laughs) <laughs> and uh i think that was the, i think that might have been the first time that i did it and you know basically just sort of the overarching philosophy is that and i'll be the first to admit i twitter there's a lot to like i've I have made a lot of friends some connections i i'm a writer so i can promote my work i mean let's be honest there's a lot to like about twitter right but eventually we all go too far. <laughs> we all, in all forms of social media, we all ev- eventually say a thing that we should not be saying. And the whole idea behind never tweet is basically just just keep you honest. Just uh, <laughs> be willing. Just have that have that little voice in the back of your head whispering: Should you do this? Should we take a breath? Should we go grab a cup of coffee, walk around the block instead of tweet this potentially bad thing?
0: Or have, and a, bur- or I think have that a burrito. Do that can't go wrong. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I've, and I, the, the, some of the proudest moments I've had are when I've had the tweet written and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do this, and I delete it and walk away, and life feels good then. So what that,
1: that used to be, I, like that used to be um, the angry like inter-office email, you know, like or right. the angry email that you would send to a coworker. You're like you were just having a bad day, you were cranky, and you would you write it out and you feel better for having written it mm-hmm. than you send. Right, And that's, that's what the tweet has become these days.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if people want to find you on Twitter, because you promote your work, and to find more about the book, where can they find you? Well, I can't recommend it, but if they
1: wanted to follow me on Twitter, they can follow me at Eric Mal. That's E-R-I-K-M-A-L.
0: All right. Awesome. Eric, looking forward to the book, and uh, thanks for joining me today. This was fun.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.